Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Dan Monzani, Managing Director for UK and Ireland at Aurora. My guest today is a senior Conservative MP and a former minister who's become one of the most prominent voices uh, within the governing party for stronger action to deliver a net zero economy. He served in government, including significantly as Minister for Energy and Climate Change from 2018 to 2019, when he attended Cabinet and signed the UK's net zero targets into law. Now, he's been much in the news over the last uh, several months, advocating strongly within his party for uh, a pro-environmental policy platform, including establishing a backbench net zero support group. But the reason we're talking to him today is he's also the chair of the Independent Review of Net Zero, which reported to government last Friday, the 13th of January. So I'm delighted that my guest today is Chris Skidmore, MP. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. appreciate having me on uh, your podcast. Looking forward to the discussion. Great. Well, firstly, congratulations on your report, which I, I know is both the product of several weeks of extensive engagement with the industry, but also equally, I think it's probably fair to say it's the product of more than a decade of uh, frontline politics and thinking. Um, so I thought I'd start there, actually, before we get into the report itself. Um, I'd like to sort of understand this uh, as part, you know, within the debate that you've been having uh, within politics and within the Conservative Party as well. And I'm sure your listeners will be interested in your own sort of intellectual journey. So when did you first become convinced that tackling climate change had to be an absolutely central issue of, of politics for you? Well, I think I was a latecomer uh, to this debate, to be honest with you. I was elected in uh, 2010. I represent a constituency called Kingswood, uh, which sits basically the space between Bristol and Bath. I focused a lot on environment while I was a backbencher. Uh, it's a lot of green belt land uh, in that area. Uh, so you was very keen to look at sort of environmental sort of protection and you know, making sure sort of nature was protected. Uh, I also had a sort of strong interest in science and innovation. Before becoming a member of parliament, I taught history uh, at uh, Bristol University. Um, and I was keen, you know, to part of being a backbench MP to establish the Bristol Bath Science Park, uh, the National Composite Centre, which is part of the high value, fa- value manufacturing catapult. Uh, so yeah, I'd sort of uh, it was had a growing interest in looking at innovation research uh, for the future, uh, and then the, you'd imagine uh, when you are uh, an MP and a backbench MP and ministerial life, you know, hopefully awaits you. You're never quite sure whether you're going to make it or not. Uh, during the coalition, you know, I didn't have any chance to uh, go up the rungs of the ladder, or the, you know, it was a slippery, uh, greasy pole, as it were, because of the coalition, you know, all the spaces were taken. And then after the 2015 election, you know, I, I won my seat again, which was uh, no by no means guaranteed. You know, I won my seat off Labour, so I spent five years sort of fighting that. And yeah, I was in, in noticing that green issues were becoming increasingly more uh, commonplace uh, in my inbox. Uh, I became the Chancellor, George Osborne's uh, parliamentary private secretary. So I spent a lot of time going around the country with him, looking at sort of these uh, you know, regeneration sort of projects. You might remember he was everywhere to be seen, looking sort of at economic development through the lens of having his sort of PPE on and the hard hat whenever he made an announcement. Then Brexit happened. Uh, and you know, I supported Remain, uh, and I wasn't quite sure whether that was going to sort of curtail my political career. 
Uh, but actually, Theresa May invited me to become Minister for the Constitution uh, in the Cabinet Office. So I had a sort of window seat into actually the very centre of government, the Cabinet Office being that sort of coordinating function. I worked closely with Jeremy Hayward and I I grasped a sort of, you know, a, 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 I learned quite a lot about the civil service. I was responsible for the civil service as a minister uh, about sort of how they held government to account on their own manifesto commitments. So looking at delivery and driving through delivery, is obviously a key part of, of cabin office function. Uh, after that, uh, I ended up to going off to, to do some work for the Conservative Party as their head of policy uh, for about nine months. Um, uh, and that was you know, to, to prepare for the next general election, uh, whenever that was going to be. Uh, but then I suddenly got moved uh, to become uh, Minister for Universities, Science, Research, Innovation, which was always my dream job. You know, David Willits held it. Joe Johnson had held it. And it was Sam Dima. Uh, and and that job you know allowed me to really meet with you know incredibly talented sort of people both at our universities and also our academies and you know, our discovery led science base, and it was that work that I was working alongside Greg Clark on the industrial strategy, taking forwards a lot of the R and D you know industrial strategy challenge funds sort of you know, opportunities that a lot of the work I was doing was on energy, <clears throat> whether that was going to try and fight for our uh, fusion facilities to make sure we still. You know, re retained our you know, operations within the joint European Taurus or you know, elsewhere with ITER in, in Marseille. Uh, yeah, I loved it. I, 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 it was you know, probably the, yeah, the best experience you know, I've had in government. But then you may remember that sort of Claire Perry, who was then the energy minister, had to stand down for sort of personal reasons in 2019. And I said to Greg Clark, I said, you know, why not just, I'll do two jobs. At the time, to be honest with you, my the prize was actually getting into cabinet because the energy minister was a, a sitting in cabinet role. And you know, that, that is what you know, a lot of MPs you know, see as you know, their uh, ultimate ambition to get to cabinet. I thought, well, Theresa May is probably on the way out. This is my last chance to, sort of, to, to, to land that, that seat around the table. Uh, and Greg and you know, Gavin Barwell, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, you know, agreed. And so then I ended up doing two jobs at once. It was totally crazy. I probably shouldn't have done it. But it was you know, the moment that I had uh, in that role as Energy Minister coincided with Theresa May's decision to stand down. And the government was then looking for a legacy uh, for the outgoing Prime Minister. She'd failed on a Brexit deal. And what I was able to give to the Chief Whip, to Gavin Barwell, was an opportunity to take forward a piece of legislation that wouldn't be requiring primary legislation. It would only be requiring secondary legislation. And that was to amend the Climate Change Act from 80% emissions reduction to 100% emissions reduction, which worked out effectively to achieve net zero. And at that time, uh, France were also preparing legislation to become the first G7 country to achieve net zero. And I went to number 10 and I said, I can give you a legacy in, in something that's not going to cause necessarily undue uh, discomfort when it comes to a parliamentary vote, because obviously you don't have the majority, uh, and also potentially uh, give the UK a, a leading platform for the future. Uh, and they agreed. They said that yeah, I could take this forward. And I managed to work you know, with all parties, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, as well as you know, groups like Greenpeace, like Extinction Rebellion at the time, to try to get that consensus that we needed to get this net zero um, sort of on the statute book. So on the 24th of June, yeah, I signed that uh, into law, becoming the minister to yeah, be the first minister to set a net zero target into law, first G7 country, and we beat France by one day. 
but as a result of that, I was also privately, and people don't, you know, often you don't see this, what happens in ministerial life behind the scenes. You're having lots of these bilateral conversations with other ministerial colleagues in Europe and Canada, for example, to try and land our uh, presidency of COP26. Uh, and so as soon as we got that zero commitment across the line, that led to a number of countries then backing us, Italy deciding that they were going to have to tactfully sort of pull out, which you know, we worked with them to have that sort of role hosting the youth COP. And then I managed to land COP26 as well. And that was all within an eight-week period. So my lesson from that is sometimes when it comes to looking at the time frame, you know, don't bemoan the fact that you may not have much time in government. Just get on and do what you think you can do and as best you can do it and try to make a difference in the shorter time as possible. Don't think that tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow is always going to continue because it won't. And that was the philosophy I applied to the Net Zero Review uh, because I was given this review uh, on the back of, as you mentioned, uh, a leadership contest where I thought that Net Zero might be a casualty might end up on the cutting room floor. And I ran this uh, net zero pledge to get all candidates to back net zero. I, I organized hustings. I got Alex Sharma, the COP26 president, uh, to chair. We got all candidates to back net zero. But Liz Truss, who obviously became the successful uh, winner of that leadership contest, became prime minister, said she backed net zero by 2050, but wanted to do it in a way that was more affordable, more efficient, and more sort of pro-business, pro-growth. Now, we all know that net zero is pro-business, pro-growth, but that gave me... Uh, potentially an opportunity. And when Liz Truss asked me to chair that review, some people might have thought it was a hospital pass. You know, was I being asked as chair to give cover to you know, bringing in you know, other sort of uh, areas such as fracking or something? And I was very clear coming out of the stocks to say I wouldn't be sort of looking at fracking as an independent chair. I cherish that independence, but I was only given three months to, to do the review. And some people might have balked at that and thought, you know, I can't achieve this. But I said to the team, and I had a fantastic team, the 20 civil servants from across government, comments from the Bank of England, DIT, DEFRA. Um, let's all make this a moment where we can be proud of something and we want to put it on our, on our CVs. So let's not know, let's throw everything at it. And that was a strategic choice. You know, I could have done a 100 page report picking up sort of certain areas of focus. But actually, I thought I would you know, try and be as comprehensive as possible. This was my one last chance potentially to influence net zero policy for the future. I've been out of government since February 2020, even before COVID. So, you know, I sort of hadn't been involved in the net zero strategy. I hadn't been involved, obviously, in Glasgow either. Uh, and, you know, I you know, would have loved to have had that opportunity. It just wasn't presented uh, to me. Uh, so now I was going to seize this uh, moment with both hands. So I said we were going to, you know, maximum possible whole of society consultation. Uh, so we yeah, received 1,800 written evidence uh, submissions, but also I was going to get around the country, you get to every region in England, every devolved nation in the UK to demonstrate that I had earned the right to be heard. Because so many times with these, these reviews, they're a closed shop. They take place in Westminster. You don't get that opportunity to bring in the lived experience of communities across the country. So we did 52 roundtables. That meant I actually met face-to-face -face about a thousand people representing obviously organizations far larger than the individual online or in person. And as a result, it was the largest engagement exercise specifically on net zero, I think, that's ever sort of taken place. But that gave us a platform then to bring forward this report. And obviously it's 130,000 words, 340 pages, 129 recommendations uh, and you know some of those recommendations are very much thinking in the long term and creating the infrastructure and the frameworks we need to deliver on net zero and we'll talk about that in a moment I'm sure 
But I see this as a delivery uh, and implementation document. Hopefully other countries can potentially think through you know, the implications of this, of how they deliver net zero for themselves. So yeah, there is a strategic advantage, I think, you know, in thinking about this document, not just as a, a, a suite of recommendations to government. You know, that was never my intention. This is more about the framework and the narrative of why we should be doing net zero. And it's not just an environmental policy anymore. You know, since I signed net zero into law uh, 42 months ago, uh, we, the progress that has happened, both in governments, uh, you know, where we've seen now 90% of the world's GDP under some form of net zero target, I simply wouldn't have believed you uh, back in 2019, that would be the case. But also from the private sector, who all put you know, their own net zero plans in place. But they remain words on a page. They are strategy documents. And everyone is now thinking, how do we deliver? How do we implement our commitments? So I think this, this review is very timely now, not just for uh, the, the current administration and government, but potentially, obviously, for all political parties in the run-up to the next general election, but moving outside of the realms of Westminster, but also you know, the energy sector, the finance sector, you know, the charitable sector, to think through this document and what it means for them, because 50% of all decisions that are needed for net zero will not be taken by government. And yeah, I'm very keen that we have this ability now to, to think what more widely about what does this mean in terms of government's accountability? What does it mean for transparency? What does it mean, obviously, for the certainty around future investment? And I hope this report you know, will be seen not just as a report into government, but a report by the sector for the sector. That's, that's really useful. And I mean, like a bit of a spoiler alert for listeners, we're not going to go through all 129 recommendations. <laughs> um, but I hope we can pull out some of those themes. And, I, and I'll come back, I hope, to... Um, to the state of the debate within the Conservative Party on, on this as well, because obviously um, some, of the, some of the origin of this, as you, as you said, speaks to that. Um, but let's, let's turn to the report first. Um, the first section is very much about the case for net zero. And I think if anyone had thought that you were uh, going to provide a fig leaf for people going against net zero, they'd have been very disappointed by that section. So in a nutshell, what's your, what's your argument for, for doubling down net zero now when the voters, if you ask them, straight up, would probably say their main concerns are the cost of living or struggling public services. So you're absolutely right. Part one is very much uh, setting up the macroeconomic case uh, for net zero. As I said, I thought this was, you know, I had to frame a new narrative uh, for net zero. It's not just, you know, it's not a religion. It's not an eco project, as some detractors might say. It now uh, provides us with an economic platform to transform the future prosperity of the UK. Not just that, but if we look at not taking forward net zero, so if we'd had, you know, the alternative is not zero, we will miss out on billions, if not trillions of investment, a wall of capital that is, went, is, is waiting to be spent by international investments in the UK if we can deliver on the projects, on the programmes that are needed. And that requires obviously certainty, consistency, sort of clarity when it comes to future policy frameworks from government, but also from you know, making sure that we have the skills and those wider infrastructure challenges uh, solved. But ultimately, the case is not just that this is about our, our place in a global economy of bringing in inward investment, of encouraging green exports, of, of generating new green jobs. Behind that is the case that net zero yeah, is not an eco project. It will ensure that households become warmer and richer over time. And I've been very 
key in, in, the, key in the report, not just to take evidence. We've got our own net zero distribution analysis tool that is honest and upfront about the costs of net zero uh, and what needs to be spent, but also recognizes as part of the transition, you know, individuals will need to repair their homes over time anyway. Individuals will need to replace their gas boilers over time anyway. Individuals frequently uh, change their cars anyway. The change that occurs anyway uh, happens and is a cost. All we are doing is replacing that with a transformation towards new technologies that are more efficient, are more affordable and are lower cost in the long run. And trying to get across that narrative that you know, a, the, the act of renewal is not just about renewable energy. It is about renewable finance. It's about in renewable household budgets, because once you make that saving and you pay off the costs, the actual benefit you receive financially accrues year on year on year. And trying to get across to those who worry about you know, the costs of net zero. One of the uh, biggest mistakes, I think, looking back at 2019, when we were in that rush to get net zero on the statute book, is we didn't have a cost benefit analysis of net zero, we only had a cost analysis. And actually, I know the CCC did some work on the benefits of net zero, but since then, net zero has only been framed in terms of its overall cost. Even if that cost is borne 70% by the private sector overall, and you know, it's important to make sure that you know, the taxpayer is not entirely on the hook for net zero, you know, the Public Accounts Committee is always gonna come forward saying, what's the cost of net zero? And actually, this report sets out for the first time you know, what needs to be spent and obviously urges the Treasury to go further on and you know, what needs to be set out in terms of uh, a portfolio of, of where spending will occur and what investment is needed for the future. But it makes it very clearly, not just for international investment communities and the City of London, the opportunities and the regional opportunities for post-industrial uh, communities and cities, to really embrace net zero and you know, find their place in the future uh, world of the 21st century, that is every economy will be a green economy. Yeah. It actually sets out for each householder that you know, this will make you richer over time. And I think it's really important to try and allay the concerns. And I've, you know, I've met with groups like the Net Zero Scrutiny Group and Craig McKinley. Yeah, I think in climate policy, sometimes we often speak to ourselves and don't speak to those who we think, uh, you know, don't share necessarily the same sort of worldview. And it's really important as part of the transition that we do make sure it's a just transition and we make sure it's an inclusive transition and it's a whole of society transition. That includes making sure we listen to the fears and the concerns of those who are worried about the costs of net zero and trying to demonstrate that those costs will be met and that when it comes to any transition, no one bemoans the fact that they went off uh, tube-based televisions onto flat-screen TVs. It just happened at a tipping point when the innovation was right. No one bemoaned the fact that they left their landlines or their large mobile phones and went onto iPhones. Again, it just happened. And you know, people do replace their materials over time. You know, no one bemoaned moving from their DVD collection to Netflix. How can we ensure that those transitions are also the similar transitions for net zero for the future is absolutely you know, critical because this is not something that can be imposed on people. You know, net zero is not a centrally controlled project directed by the WEF, as some other you know, detractors might say. You know, it is a project that I've seen communities on the ground across the country raring to go, but they can't because there are too many barriers in the way. And this report is about trying to unblock those barriers and demonstrate that the uh, financial advantages will be spread across the country. Indeed, your report has a 
couple of the pillars that you pull out on the yeah, sort of the path to, to net zero are about communities and the individual. And um, one of the things that struck me in that was the recommendation that we have gas-free homes by 2033 uh, and that that would require legislation now, this parliament. And that caught my eye because it came in the same week that Centricred said they would price match their heat pumps to their gas boilers. So I'm interested in building on something you just said. How quickly do you think we can get to a tipping point on heat pumps where they're, they're the obvious replacement choice? And does that need to be left? Can that just be left to the market or does that need to be driven by regulation that essentially prevents you from making a high carbon choice? So there is a role, I think, for, for regulation uh, and to make installation easier uh, for the future. And we address that. I mean, I remember one of the challenges I went to Northern Ireland. They say, well, heat pumps, you know, actually, there are still regulations in place that won't allow heat pumps uh, to be within, I think, uh, a couple of metres of another property. Uh, potentially that was put in place because of the noise that maybe older heat pumps made. Totally irrelevant now. And it's not just about the finance, but you're absolutely right. There's a tipping point coming. I think there is now the winds of change are blowing. Uh, and it, when you look at heat pumps, we're going to have you know, this uh, competitive race, you know, not just globally, as I talked about the net zero race. We're going to see companies now really engage on this. And obviously, Octopus had set their £3,000 heat pump. And we've got Centrica you know, British Gas is doing the £2,999 heat pump. It's going to come down even further. But not just that. I had a, you know, a fascinating visit to the Octopus Innovation Centre in Slough, where I hope I'm not sort of betraying confidences, but you know, it's also about the size of the heat pump. It's about sort of you know, demonstrating to people that the shape of the compressor can be put in the same box as you know, a condenser boiler and sort of you know, that actually there is no change, there's no physical change. And I think trying to show to people it's not just about the money, but about the inconvenience factor of the change is also something that is, is, is being addressed at speed. Because that is you know, the, the utility element that you know, Steve Jobs you know, won the war, uh, the, you know, the technological race with Apple, because he thought through the, the, the eyes of the user, the user the sort of led experience. And that's now, I think, happening when it comes to energy. And that's not just about heat pumps. That's also about sort of wider use of actually you know, trying to ensure that you know, energy was once just centrally commandeered and imposed upon customers. It's now being reversed. You need to think of energy as a service and how we look at this as a service industry for the future rather than just a utility and with that you know, sort of heavy-handed sort of regulation. And I think that is a culture shift that is happening and needs to happen both within the sector and uh, companies. But yeah, I think there are a number of organisations that are leading on actually this innovation, not just in technology, but innovation in thought. And net zero, I think, requires an innovation in behavioural change, not just for the you know, individual and consumers, but also for the energy sector itself about how he approaches intelligently how to deliver on this for the future. And that comes down also to the gas grid, because I think when it from myself and I thought I was thinking about this before sort of Joe Manchin and the states and obviously the sort of gas appliances and cooker and sort of, you know, it's an international conversation as well as a UK conversation. But for myself, you know, at the moment when we have people looking at their bills they've got the they've got the gas bill they've got the electricity bill we obviously call for a a, a a rebalancing in the price to be able to trigger a demonstration that electricity is far cheaper than gas but once you're off gas you know you're also making your home a lot safer uh you know and, and also incentivizing that ability from like almost like a two-for-one opportunity to say if you get off your heat if you get off your boiler why do you still need gas for your cooker you know, just just rip it out, and and then you 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 you're then going to be in a place 
where you're going to be able to you know, deliver those savings. And, and as gas and the cost of gas only rises for the future, as it will do, you're going to be able to see those benefits accrue. And again, we use the distributional uh, analysis tool to model these things through a typology of 36 different households. It's all in the report if you want to sort of look in closer detail yeah, about this. But I did feel that we you know we needed our own modelling. And that we that's why we decided to move the boiler uh, end date from 2035 to 2033. You know, we did think about 2030. We went to the industry and spoke closely to them. And 2030, you know, would not have been feasible or sustainable. It wouldn't have been able to build up the supply chain. But what we've got now by taking that decade approach from 20 from 23 to 2033, as you saw from the initial coverage of the review, a decade till gas boilers end. It's the same as the Z mandate. And that provides that sort of coalescing impetus, I think, for the sector to get on with it. At the moment, everyone's still holding off slightly. 2035 is just too far away. Whereas 2033, I think, hopefully provides people with that sort of big bang moment. Uh, and then obviously there's a, a wider question on the future of you know, both new homes, because I think if we can get on with new homes ASAP. You know, why not? Obviously, you know, retrofit is the, is the larger challenge. But on the new homes, we've talked about having a net zero home standard that you know, would even go further than the future home standard. Solar on roof, you know, fully sort of a insulated uh, you know, beyond uh, the EPCC, thinking about net zero performance certificate and also no new, no gas in, in the home. But obviously there are conversations still about the future of hydrogen for heating. You know, I'd sit there in some of these round tables and see the sectors argue amongst themselves. Now, you know, in terms of the review, we've talked about bringing that date forward for a decision far sooner than 2026. But yeah, there may be some areas off grid uh, where they want to use hydrogen for heating in Northern Ireland, very keen. Green hydrogen for on onshore wind. Scotland in the north, you know, beyond the gas grid and thinking. But ultimately, yeah, this is going to be a heat pump revolution. It's going to be electricity that drives the transformation. Uh, and I hopefully have been you know, clear about that in the report. Uh, so it might be, might be quite a useful lens through some of your other pillars, because um, uh, I mean, one of the reasons why we're seeing people move now, maybe it's part of, part of where the technology and the innovation is, but it's also that there were some um, financial incentives brought in by, by government over I think a three-year window, which which brings me to one of the points you make about government clarity, consistency, and direction. You, you seem to think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we won't achieve net zero if we stick within the cycle of three-year funding commitments, and that in order to break out of that and make sure we get to these tipping points, we need to be seeing sort of a twelve-year commitment um, uh, and an overarching financial strategy partly from the Treasury, but, but across Whitehall. What would you like to see in that financial strategy? So you're right. The report is called Mission Zero because I believe that we should have from 2025, we should have lined up the infrastructure, the sort of decision-making requirements to be able to then kick off you know, some key missions. Uh, because uh, you know, one message of the report is you can have these targets, you can, but if you haven't been able to align how you're going to deliver and work through a, a, a concentrated uh, plan uh, that will also be flexible and agile and you know, meet all the unknowable events in the future, you know, you're not going to be able to you know, achieve the target. Uh, and that applies as much to sort of nuclear and to carbon capture and hydrogen you know, as it does to looking at domestic energy efficiency for the future. But it, it argues against a project by project based approach that we've seen, I think, from the government in the past. Now, I, yeah, I've been a member of Parliament since 2010. I remember the good old days where we had a five year uh, CSR settlement, I think, in, in sort of 2010, 2015. Uh, but, you yeah, know, we've had chopping and changing number of administrations, each presenting their own CSR. Uh, and, you know, that has caused you know, an instability that means that international investors 
the financial sector aren't willing to invest unless they can see where their investment is going to be made and how it's going to deliver the transformation that also the government will act as you know, guarantor to that transformation. And so I've tried to reach out to all political parties because you, yeah, there's a general election in 2024. And so making sure I can get cross-party consensus is really key because whoever wins the election, I want them to see this report as an independent report that they want to take forwards to the future. But we call for a, a, an investment strategy from the Treasury. We also call for the Treasury to look at the tax incentives when it comes to sort of net zero for the future. So it's not just, you know, it's not just stick, it's also carrot as well that's really important here. Um, that you know, I argued this when I was a science minister as well. If you looked at Horizon 2020, Horizon Europe, you know, that's a seven-year funding cycle. Uh, and it's not just the money that the scientists want, it's that long-term stability uh, around and clarity around what the missions are. And I've tried to apply that sort of similar framework you know, to uh, net zero. So we've got 10 10-year missions. And the idea of having the 10-year mission is that 2025 is then 25 years, 2050. But the key thing that we all don't really sort of engage with as much as we should is the NDC by 2030, you know, 70% emissions reduction. And then obviously you've got the 2035 commitments on decarbonizing the power sector and obviously the energy efficiency measures, which have asked to be brought forward slightly in some cases. Yeah, this is not uh, too far away. Net zero by 2050 is 324 months away. Uh, so yeah, we haven't got much time. But you know, we we need to have that this ability to be able to plan. And other countries do it. You know, at the moment, you know, your energy efficiency measures in Germany are planned on a 10-year basis. Uh, their hydrogen strategy is on a a 10-year basis that they've set out the billions of investment as opposed to the millions of investment we've made in hydrogen. We need to do the same. And uh, you know, other countries, whether it's through the EU's Fit for 55 and their their green uh, EU Green Deal, you know, whether it's through you know, looking at what the US has done with the Inflation Reduction Act, this is now long-term programmatic certainty that is being set out with clarity on price points for the future. You know, we need to, we led when it came to offshore wind with the CFD mechanism, a, a stable mechanism which the private sector could trust to deliver on investment for the future. And that's what we need in all areas of net zero for the future. And that's why I'm urging the Treasury to consider that long-term approach of consistency, clarity, and certainty in the missions that could be taken forwards. But let's prepare for the missions and let's make sure we line all our ducks up in a row so they're ready to go for 2025. Do you think we risk falling behind those other countries? I mean, you point to Inflation Reduction Act, the US, plenty of things in the EU, uh, and some of that is about putting the clarity and the tax incentives and all the rest of it. I mean, is it a sense in which we had it easy in the 2010s and the UK is going to have to work a lot harder in the 2020s to attract that talent, capital, supply chain innovation here? Yeah, I mean, there were some uh, decisions that were taken, again, on the be- on the back of a minority of individuals who were arguing against uh, you know, green improvements, whether in onshore wind or whether in energy efficiency, that have been catastrophic financially. You know, not just in terms of the ability for us to have scaled up our renewable power generation further and faster than we could have. And yeah, if we're going to meet that 2035 decarbonisation of the power sector, I mean, it's it's now just become a far steeper curve. And we've had to develop far more in far, in far less time. And, you know, that's the challenge you know, with this report this presents, because when I was asked the question, you know, how do you achieve net zero in a more affordable and efficient manner? My answer in my 320 page essay is you achieve net zero in an affordable and efficient way by doing as much as you can now because the costs will only rise the longer you delay 
and to create uncertainty means the investment will go elsewhere. And we've had for a, in the past an argument, well, the UK has been leading and you know, it, it, other companies don't want to go elsewhere. You know, what the US has done in 2022 with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, £369 billion worth of investments can be made in green technologies, means there is now another place for these companies to go. You know, what Germany is taking forward, or even what China is taking forward, you know, there is uh, other countries that investors can now locate in a way that potentially that wasn't the case 10 years ago. So we are in this global net zero race. And that in a way is fantastic because you know, the progress that we will make as part of that competitive spirit you know, is going to deliver global transformation on emissions reduction. But the UK has to ask itself the question, does it want to lead or does it want to follow? Because to lead is far, far more affordable and cheaper in the long run than the costs of following. You know, there are no free rider advantages now in net zero of the UK simply waiting to just see the US or Germany or other countries pull ahead of us. And I, I urge you know, the UK government to think through the impact of not zero, because net zero now is the primary agent by which we can achieve economic growth in the future. Just turning to that sort of 2035 talk, there's, an, there's another argument that uh, climate sceptics or, or people worried about the cost, perhaps we, to be fair, um, will make, which is actually energy security. And, and you're... you're um, you make quite good use of uh, in your report of some of the, the recent problems around uh, resource uh, dependency on, on, on Russia, gas and so on, to argue that actually net zero is about energy security. Could you just sort of talk a bit about that? Is it, do you think we should be sort of repatriating supply chains a bit or is it more just about getting off gas? So you're absolutely right. You know, 2022 you know, was a, a catalytic moment. You know, Russia's illegal war in Ukraine created not just a cost of energy crisis, it's a cost of gas crisis. And I think other countries have woken up now to the fact that fossil fuels in the longer term are not just responsible for causing the climate crisis, they will be responsible and continue to be responsible for engendering the future security of those countries. We used to worry about the lights going out when it came to wind and solar. The lights go out now because countries can't secure a supply of gas and it has placed them in an incredibly vulnerable state where they are now dependent on foreign powers for their future livelihoods, their healthcare, all of which you know, requires the, the energy that's needed. And other countries have now decided that the, the, the answer to this problem you know, is renewables, is uh, clean power, you know, whether that's in the form of nuclear as well. Uh, and so we need to be able to recognise that when it comes to energy security, we've got to be able to get the basics right. So pillar one, uh, chapter one, or part two of the report is thinking through securing net zero. And again, this is coming back to those who are concerned about the transition. You know, if we're just simply buying up solar panels from China, you know, that is not a long-term energy security strategy. We've got to think through how we create the secure supply chains with our own democratic Western nations. So we're not in hock. We don't repeat history when it comes to renewable and clean technology. It's really important that we get that sort of thought through. And obviously with that comes thinking about the skill supply chains, the material supply chains, the critical mineral supply chains, all that is in the report, thinking through how we can deliver on net zero and make sure that we don't put ourselves in a vulnerable position as we have with gas in the past. Uh, but nevertheless, there is also a challenge of what we define as energy security versus what I would call term energy sovereignty. Because one of the 
regretful situations, I think, that we find with the Inflation Reduction Act is a lot of that investment uh, has obviously conditions placed on it that can only be spent uh, through using US companies. And now we have seen and um, potentially other countries, the EU, for example, may now react to the Inflation Reduction Act by creating a new green trade war. Um, that is the consequences of energy sovereignty. And energy sovereignty is also uh, less efficient and creates less affordable pathways towards net zero. Because you've got every other country replicating their supply chains uh, and, and not thinking through how they can produce at scale. Energy security, on the other hand, places at its heart cooperation and the ability for collaboration. And what I would like to see is a renewed energy security uh, approach that recognizes where the UK can demonstrate its comparative advantage and not just think about net zero for delivering UK jobs for a UK market. And it comes back to that heat pumps question that you mentioned earlier about the sort of the site. Yeah, the sort of if we simply decide that we are going to engineer and build out the transition just specifically for the UK, we'll have missed that opportunity to, to buy into the global market. We need to be thinking about energy and net zero solutions that are applicable across the world not just the UK as well. So there will be some solutions that are UK specific due to our geography and uh, you know, particular energy intensive industries. But let's think also about you know, where we can find our advantage internationally, how we can build out those international supply chains with those international corporations and work together to demonstrate that we can find you know, a real sense of productivity for the UK green economy, not just replicating what might be happening in another country, because that country will always then potentially undercut the UK at a later stage, and we might miss out in the future. Uh, so I'm, I'm very keen to get across the, the case that it is energy security rather than energy sovereignty that we need for the future. But the broad direction of travel is right, in that it is net zero, that will not just only get us out of the climate crisis, it will not only get us out of a, a, an ability to sort of think through any future economic crises, it will get us out of this uh, security crisis that we are now facing as a result of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. That's probably quite a good point to pivot back to the, the politics of this and, and the, or, or at least the political economy of this. And I, I had a couple more questions to ask you on this. One is um, pulling on the final chapter in your, in your report, which is around uh, net zero in the future, and particularly what you say about carbon leakage, where, um, you rightly, in my view, point out that if you're going to de um, decarbonize energy intensive industrials and so forth, then you need some form of carbon border adjustment. Uh, so my question is, is how do we do that? How do we build the international coalition, particularly, and you mentioned you voted to remain, but particularly starting from where we are today in our relationship with Europe? Do we need to be improving that relationship as a prerequisite to making progress on, on net zero? So I'm keen uh, to ensure that when it comes to you know, the net zero transition, that we build out future energy partnerships uh, with our European neighbours, whether in the EU or whether they're not you know, in the EU. You know, there's also an Eastern European bloc, also uh, Switzerland, you know, that equally you know, carbon emissions reduction no, 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 knows no borders. And so you know, trying to get that across is, is, is key. Uh, I'm a member of the Parliamentary Partnership Assembly on the future relationship between the EU and the UK. So I go to Brussels regularly and sort of meet with my European counterparts. And energy is obviously a, a, a key topic of discussion, you know, whether that's looking 
at the, the future of the North Sea, uh, yeah, and that, that our shared priorities there, whether it's looking at sort of future hydrogen grids, whether it's looking at sort of yeah, the provision of nuclear, um, yeah, there are shared challenges and we are stronger for having those opportunities to share the solutions together. Um, but, and I will be actually presenting the report to all the energy attaches uh, uh, next week, actually, I'm having a sort of discussion with them to, because I think, again, the commonality of interest and the recommendations made in this report aren't just UK specific. They apply to other countries as well. And I'm keen to share them uh, internationally. Uh, but, yeah, I think we will need to think through you know, you know, how we take forward a post-Ukraine uh, situation on energy, because there are countries that are keen to use British industry, uh, British companies to be able to build out you know, their own renewable and clean power uh, opportunities. You know, there are other opportunities for other countries. You know, when, I mean, when it comes to heat pumps, you know, we have very few heat pump factories in this country. We potentially might want to bring other European heat pump factories to the UK. Certainly, if we need to be able to build out the numbers that are going to be required. So let's have those conversations. I think probably they can happen separately to any sort of you know, revision of any EU deal. We haven't got time to waste, to be honest. So I've always been keen to sort of have energy as a separate sort of carve out and to maintain the dialogue. Uh, and then also with the US. So I, I really do strongly feel that we've got to be able to, to think through what is our answer to the Belt and Road strategy that sort of China has taken forwards. How can we as democratic nations use energy as an opportunity to be able to work with you know, less developed or developing nations to also you know, demonstrate that we have that shared challenge and that we will work together. So I'm keen to use the cooperation with our European neighbours and also our US partners and Canadian partners and, and South American partners as well to, to work you know, on that sort of ideal of you know, demonstrating that when it comes to you know, the global energy supply, when it comes to sort of global commitments to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and achieve net zero, that we uh, work together as uh, democratically interested nations. Fascinating. And, and um, if I may, I might be my final question, just to, to take you back a, a decade or, or more to when you first came to, to prominence, because I think it sort of perhaps puts a lens on some of the debates that are happening uh, that you, you um, entered into during the leadership debates last year. I mean, you were one of the co-authors of a very famous book now, Britannia Unchained, with a um, number of other, uh, at the time, rising stars and Liz Trask, Kwasi Kwarteng and so on. Uh, now, reading back at uh, some of the sort of... Um, some of that, uh, I'm struck actually that a lot of that was motivated by concern about British economic competitiveness. And, and reading your report, I'm struck that you still seem to have that absolutely front and central as a sort of defining um, challenge. But your review reads in a very different way to that kind of radical free market approach of, of, the, of the last decade. It's sort of less getting government out of the way and more reshaping government so it's an enabler of pointing economic direction, uh, activity in the right direction. Do you think it's that diagnosis about the active role of government that makes it so controversial within within conservative politics, do you, and do you think your your view will prevail in the debates running up to the next election? So yeah, when Britannia and Chains yeah was written, I was a bit younger than I was about thirty one, I think I can't remember. Sort of that uh, I was the youngest of the five, and uh, obviously the, the the one that never made it sort of as a Secretary of State. And I think people have referred to me as either the sort of Pete Best or the Stuart Sutcliffe of the uh, Britannia and Chains. Uh, group. I saw someone on Twitter, however, refer to me as Pete Sutcliffe of the uh, Britannia and Chain crew. Might have got a bit confused there, but um, you know, it, it, I've obviously uh, you know had the opportunity 
uh, you know, not being a secretary of state to, to uh, over the past uh, couple of years to sort of grow out my uh, sort of independence. And I've got this sort of senior fellowship at the Harvard Kennedy School where I've been sort of thinking through uh, some of these ideas. Uh, actually, I think Kwasi Kwarteng would probably share my view that you'd have an active role for the state to be able to shape the strategy that is needed. And actually, when it comes to climate change, you know, that active role, you know, we had needs to, to happen at a, a national level, not just the international sort of level. I think we've sort of learned the lessons now of intergovernmental approaches that didn't allow for you know, in, in countries to take industrial strategies or, or, or green industrial strategies forward, which is effectively what you know, this report uh, is trying to do. Um, nevertheless, though, when you come back to looking at Britannia and Chain, my chapter was actually, I think, uh, called Buccaneers. So my chapter was on Israel and specifically focusing on the importance of research and development. As we know, Israel is now touching, I think, 5% of its GDP, both public and private, is now being spent on R&D. But back then in 2012, you know, I was making the case, this is before we had our 2.4% R&D commitment in the UK, uh, that we needed to change our economy and shift our economy towards a innovation and research-based rich economy. And I stand by you know, what I wrote in that chapter, uh, you know, obviously, it was a polemic. You know, we were looking to rattle the cage. We were trying to get the, the Tory party to actually get off stale debates uh, around social conservatism and uh, the European debate, to be honest with you. We're saying, look, it doesn't matter whether we're in or out of the EU. The key point here is that there is a wider global economy, the tiger economies that are taking off. And the UK is in a global race. <laughs> and and you know, I haven't changed my mind when it comes to that global race argument. And I've applied it here uh, to net zero. Uh, I think you... 10 years on, if you'd asked me as a 31 year old, you know, sort of, the, you know, obviously, I, would I be interested in climate change? You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily imagine so. And it, I think it demonstrates the ability for the world to change. I, I'm fascinated how net zero went viral, for example, you know, thinking about policy frameworks that are going to succeed in the future on those that fail. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the role for the state, I think, and this report tries to make this clear, is obviously is to, to help plan to help coalesce, but also to then get out of the way. And there are many areas that this report focuses on, whether it's in planning, uh, you know, whether it's in the role of local government or other delivery partners, such as community energy. There are people wanting to get on with the job, and yet they can't because there are too many regulatory or legislative barriers in the way. So I would say that you know, there is a strategic role for the state, but actually at the same time, you know, net zero is not going to be achieved by Westminster and Whitehall alone. And it needs to, where possible, you know, pro provide the active role that is needed to demonstrate the certainty, the clarity and the stability that I spoke about, not least obviously through sort of financial investment, but also it needs to remove itself uh, from where it is actually preventing and delaying uh, the actual progress that could be achieved. I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. I feel like we've come full circle back to the guiding principles of your review. So uh, all that remains for me to say is that, uh, Chris Gidmore, thank you very much for joining us um, uh, and uh, for being on Energy Unplugged today. Thank you very much. That was Dan Monzani, Aurora's Managing Director for UK and Ireland, talking to Chris Skidmore MP, Chair of the Independent Review of Net Zero. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>